Hi, welcome to Soul Sciences, where inner exploration merges with outer experiences. I'm your host, Charlene. Many thanks to Kevin McLeod for this lovely intro and outro music called Carefree. For more writing and more information on Soul Sciences, including how to buy my books, please go to http colon two forward slashes www.soulsciences.net. That's www.soulsciences.net. Or email me at charlenej at rogers.com. That's C-H-A-R-L-E-N-E-J at Rogers, R-O-G-E-R-S dot com. I'd love to hear from you, and I promise to respond. And now for today's program of Soul Sciences. Stashniak. Eva, thank you so much for agreeing to the interview. Oh, you're very welcome, Charlene. Nice to see you again. Oh, it's lovely to see you and love you to be here in your beautiful home. Now, we were just bubbling a minute ago about writing. Tell me what your day's been like so far, including when you got up, what you did, and how it has gone. Well, I tend to wake up at the crack of dawn, five o'clock, sometimes even earlier, one hour for breakfast and a little bit of reading, independent reading that is not related to my book. And then from six o'clock on, I am upstairs in my office in front of my computer. I am putting together a draft of my new novel. So this is a really difficult time because you've carried this book in your heart for so long and it is so beautiful the way you imagine it and now you're putting it together and it becomes a physical book and it will be better with the next draft but the first draft is a bit of a disappointment usually I mean it always has been like that with my previous novels it feels not as beautiful as I imagined it and therefore I'm frustrated and I'm close to crying and despairing you know I think oh this is so horrible I thought it would be so good but uh, it's part of the process it's the middle part of the process which is always the hardest whatever artist you are if you're a dancer if you're a painter if you're a writer there's this moment of fashioning something out of nothing or out of clay, out of a clump that it is of the material. So this is whatever I am at. Oh, my deepest sympathies, because I truly, truly relate. And the way I sometimes think of this particular stage of it is that the project is an adolescent. And just like adolescents, it's alternately unlovable completely lovable, knows what it's doing, doesn't know what it's doing, stumbles around, makes a fool of itself, all of this in your own head, in your own mind while you're at the keyboard. But there's no other way, I don't think, to create anything, as you say, out of a lump of clay or out of nothing. No, there is no other way. I mean, at least I don't know the other way. I think that there are writers who can go through this period of shaping the material in their heads. So by the time they actually write the first draft, they are much further ahead. And this is really the same process. It's just achieved in a different way. So the messiness is done when they are brooding over the novel, maybe taking notes, maybe outlining very, very carefully and what goes where. Uh, I work on my first draft. I mean, that first draft, the putting together of the first draft is most physical for me. And, and where the messiness of the writing process is the most visible. 
because then afterwards when I polish the drafts it becomes again more organized I find shortcuts I, I know what is not necessary what can be shortened what needs to be shot and has to be shortened cut and then the shape of the novel is coming but that first bringing forth of, of the complete draft is I find necessary but also very painful Now, that's particularly true, I think, in the kind of work that you do, the historic novels. I should think that it may be not less painful, but maybe perhaps a different kind of messy or at a different stage if you're working, as you say, on a purely fictional novel. You're making a draft up. You have it in your head. You have a storyboard. You have a line, a timeline, whatever it may be. But tell me about what happens prior to the first draft. Well, I do a lot of research. So in this particular novel that I'm writing is about uh, Ranislava Nijinska, who was one of the first professional choreographers in contemporary ballet, of course, a sister of Vasa Nijinsky, one of the greatest dancers in the history of ballet. So not only she's very talented, but she grew up in the shadow of her absolutely genius brother and, and had to become an artist almost in spite of the fact that she was the younger Nizhinska and a woman in a very misogynist ballet world of the 20th century. So I have a lot of very, very interesting material. I also had to learn a lot about ballet. So it's all new. It's all exciting. And I have have this temptation of teaching (laughs) ballet to my reader, which is a terrible temptation for a writer because I'm supposed to absorb it and write from that position. And there's no teaching and there will be no teaching in the novel. But but I'm still at that stage. It's still I want to explain and I want to make sure that the reader gets the details about ballet that I've just discovered. And they don't belong to the novel. Yes. But I am so excited about them. And they are so important to me still uh, that that I want to put them in. And so I I think I allow myself to put a lot into the first draft that I know won't be there at the second rewrite. But I still sort of need it at this stage to remind myself of what fascinated me about this particular artist so much, you know, because she she wasn't the only one to be so fascinated by new ballet. It was the time for it, you know, and but she was one of the the first. She was in the avant-garde of a new ballet, which ended up being ballet without the plot, ballet that was abstract, yeah, now familiar with, but at that time, you know, this was the beginning. And she was one of the of these first ones. So, so a very very interesting person. And and of course, also her life is extremely dramatic. And this whole aspect of being a woman among very very talented men who are stronger just because they are men, and they have more opportunities and they have more power in the world of that times and fighting still and not giving up and being able to achieve so much you know sure she could have achieved so much more had she been a man but she was not and she yet achieved that much herself plus was a mother and she was married twice she had two children she escaped out of revolutionary russia with two children and a mother you know which in itself was not a legal escape it wasn't getting on a train and leaving it was a true escape so there's a lot of drama in her life that i find quite fascinating and and interesting to describe so What a compelling sounding character to have gotten out of revolutionary Russia, to have made it safely not only with herself, but with two small children and her mother. 
to have taken on the extraordinary reactionary world of ballet at that time. Now, the name Degleyev keeps rumbling around in my mind. He had a tremendous power over Nijinsky. Well, yes, and of course, Bronya was there from the very beginning, his sister, because she met Diaghilev when he came visiting, when they were still both dancers in uh, the Marinsky Theater. And uh, it was with uh, Václav that she became part of Ballet Russe. So she was there all the time, and she watched the relationship between Diaghilev and Václav and forged her own friendship with Diaghilev, a very interesting friendship because, of course, she was not one of his golden boys. She was a woman. He was not interested in women. And, and of course, he also thought that two geniuses in one family, impossible. So Branya cannot be as good as Václav. And eventually, he hired her as Valery's official choreographer uh, in 1921, and she choreographed for him for five years. And in fact, they forged a very interesting relationship, you know, based on mutual respect. And uh, the, the, yes, you know, you mentioned a very dramatic relationship that he had with Václav. And for me, an interesting thing is that Václav's wife, Ramallah, never forgave Diaghilev for what he supposedly did to Václav, but Bronya did. And Bronya loved her brother very, very much and understood him much better than Ramallah did. So I think that that was a far more complex relationship than perhaps we tend to see. Yes, Diaghilev could be very cruel and very crude towards, especially towards the young men that he was in love with. Uh, he seemed to be in love with boys, not men. So when they grew up, there was always a problem. But also he enabled artists. He, both Bronya and Václav always knew that if it weren't for Diaghilev, they would not have achieved as much as they did as artists. So there was just a price to be paid, and they were quite quite convinced that they wanted, both of them, that they wanted to pay that price. What an extraordinary story. Now, how did they get involved in ballet in Russia in the early 1900s? Were they, I don't believe at that time the Russian government, as it had done later in decades, determining what the future of each of the citizens would be according to their proclivities and abilities, uh, given tests academically and so forth. They were sh people were shuffled into this or that or the other thing uh, by the state. And I don't think that was happening during this time. So how would they have encountered the Belarus? Well, they were both, Vaslav and Branya grew up in a family of dancers. The parents were dancers, and so they were surrounded by dancing all their lives. Mm -hmm. And by the time they were nine, both of them, the mother and the father, took them to St. Petersburg, and they applied to the Imperial Ballet School. And they both passed very, very competitive exams, and they were admitted. So uh, the Imperial Russia, the Imperial Ballet School, was entirely supported by, by the Tsar from the imperial purse. And so the moment they were admitted, in fact, their lives would be determined by the school. I mean, not, the education was free. It was excellent. And then after that, they were hired by the Marinsky, which was part, they became artists of the imperial theaters. And their life, if it weren't for the revolution, would have been also secured. However, what happened in the meantime, Diaghilev happened. He showed up at one of the Marinsky uh, performances, absolutely fell in love with Václav and took him to Paris, where he became a sensation in 1909. And Bronya also went, but she was one of the core of the ballet. She was two years younger, you know, was, she was catching up. And so in the spectacular success of Ballet Russe, both of them resigned from the Marinsky 
and they joined the Ballet Russe together as full-time Ballet Russe Diaghilev dancers. And they danced until the war, until 1914. Václav was dismissed after his marriage to Romola, and, and then, of course, fell into a schizophrenic bout and, and was spent most of his life, I mean, all of his life afterwards in the mental asylums. But Bronya, she was in Russia during the revolution, left Russia in 21 and then rejoined Belarus and had her career with Vyagilov and then, you know, in other ballets as well. So she, was, she became a freelance choreographer afterwards and left in 1939 for the United States and then left all, lived all her life, the, the rest, the remainder of her life, lived in California, taught ballet, worked on reconstructions of, of her brothers and her own ballets in Europe, lived to an old age and, and saw the big changes in ballet that sort of told her that they were both right, she and Vasla. Plus for us is that because she lived in the United States, her papers are in Washington at the Library of Congress, and I was able to go there and read her letters and diaries and, and look at uh, a lot of the materials, snapshots, family archives, it's all there. So it was quite fascinating. The research part was, was very fascinating, <laughs> maybe too fascinating. You know? I'm now paying for it because I have so many details that I just have to give up yes, <laughs> rather yes. than write about. What an incredible story, and I can just feel your passion coming right through the interview. It's just amazing. Now, I have a question about Degli of taking uh, Nijinsky to Paris. Did he go back to Russia with the Ballet Russe, or did the Ballet Russe stay in Europe? Nijinsky never danced in Russia again. Part of it was because he, Ballet Russe never went back to Russia. Also, there were some problems. The moment he resigned from the imperial theaters, the problem of his military status became important. Had he returned to Russia, he could have been drafted to the army. And his mother and his sister tried to get a deferral of his military service, but that didn't work out. Really, it was a bit dangerous for him to go back because of that. And then, of course, the war happened, and, and, and then we know what happened. So, no, he, he didn't, but she did. She returned in 1914. She danced in Petersburg or Petrograd, and then in Kiev. She, in fact, choreographed. She had her school, ballet school in Kiev, a very experimental. She's part of the Kiev avant-garde. So a very, very important figure in the history of Russian avant-garde. So it was quite important that she carried a lot of the ideas that both of them worked on before the war in ballet, and she sort of carried it to Russia and was able to share it with other artists. So it wasn't lost. You know, Nijinsky really wasn't absent from the avant-garde uh, Russian art. His art survived, and through Bronya and, and through her own ideas, she carried it further. She was not just copying Václav. They had very similar balletic sensitivity, so she was able to take his ideas further and develop her own. It was quite fascinating. Now, when she went to California, where were her children? I'm always interested in the children and the grandchildren. Did they come to the U.S.? By that time, only one of her children lived. There was a terrible accident, car accident in 1935 with a boy. The son died. The daughter was injured in that accident, but she survived and, in fact, had a productive, long life. She left with her mother 
um, to the United States, married there, had children, grandchildren. Granddaughter participated in some of the reconstructions of the ballets. Bronya's daughter, partly because of the accident, but partly because maybe she just didn't have it in her. She did not become a famous dancer. She became a dance teacher and, and also assistant to her mother, a very, very fruitful reconstruction of the ballets and the writing. She was always there. She, her English was excellent. She was able to be a translator, an interpreter. She oversaw the archives as well. So she had a very productive life. Fascinating. And what is the part you like the best? I like the beginning of writing when I'm still new to the material and all the stories that I find are still exciting and, and interesting. I like the research part. The first moment when the voice develops, when I hear my characters sort of detach themselves from my research and become independent voices, that's very, very wonderful. And that I love. And then I love the moment when I actually have the draft, the first draft, and it's more or less all right. I know it's not all right, but it's more or less all right. So the structure is there. The voice may be fading at times and it may not be strong enough at times, but I know how it should sound. So when I go at it for the second time, I can bring it forth. Then I again begin to like it. And and then again, I become tired with it. And so by the time I get the proofs that the book is actually done and they don't really change much, it's just polishing, then there's another moment of another really, really down moment where you just don't want to read it for the hundredth time. Again, the proofs arrive and you know that you cannot really make any major changes and every sentence sounds wrong again. And, and you wonder whether you, sh you, you can actually say she walked into the room. No, 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 no. You can't say that. That's wrong. <laughs> this, is, this is too simple. So you add five or six adjectives, and that really sounds terrible. And then you cut it down and say, no, there's nothing wrong with she walked into the room. <laughs> but you question every single sentence, and, and that becomes a problem. So there's a lot ahead of me that I won't like, but there's still, I think what I'm looking forward now is to have that draft and see that it works. For that, I have to have some external confirmation. You know, my agent is going to read it. My husband is going to read it. They are my, my first readers. And at this stage, their role is to tell me which parts of the narrative are alive and where is the dead wood mm -hmm. of the story, what mm -hmm. needs to be either cut or reworked. Mm -hmm. Because not all that's dead is wrong. It's, mm -hmm. Sometimes it's dead for another reason. It's just maybe I was tired when I was putting it in or maybe I haven't found the right voice or the right uh, angle to that particular aspect of the story and so there's still a lot of discoveries on my on the second draft that's why I find it exciting as long as I can change and I was uh, reading uh, Branislava Nizhinska's memoirs because she wrote her memoirs and published the memoirs and, and she said something very very true to my process she said she always preferred the rehearsals and the dress rehearsals of a ballet to the actual finished product because in rehearsals you can still change things you can still discover something you can find out that this step can be exchanged for a better one once the final rehearsal is over, the dress rehearsal is over, that's it. That's how this ballet is going to be danced many, many times. Uh -huh. And there's no discovery anymore. There's just repeating of it. Mm -hmm. As a dancer yourself, you may find some new freedom in your dances. You have a better night or a worse night, but you cannot really change much because others are depending on you doing it the way it has to be done. You cannot suddenly add steps. 
because you know your partner will be proud of a ransom you cannot there's no real changes possible so i you know the second draft is where still changes can happen and they do happen a lot of good discoveries the deepening of the plot the de- deepening of the character so i'm looking forward to that then i'll be happy again so <laughs> for a while and what about the whole business of marketing of publicity and getting on the trains and the planes that you get on i i think i just have this impression that you are enormously popular of course internationally and therefore are always or at a certain point in the year or at a certain point in the publication process on the move constantly. Do you give our listeners a few words about that? Oh, I do. There is a lot of publicity that that you have to do, that you want to do. I find the most tiring one is the one that involves traveling because it's not only, you know, an evening with the audience or a few interviews. It's the whole day taken and the traveling itself is quite difficult. It has its advantages. You get to see it places that you wouldn't have seen otherwise. You meet people you wouldn't have met. I find that I can do publicity pretty well. I've I've taught many years. You know, it's not a problem to stand in front of a group and talk about my writing. But it's not what I love the most about this. And there's always this added difficulty of having to speak in positive terms about your own work. Deep down, you kind of think other people should praise you, not you yourself, right? (laughs) It's an old lesson that I learned as a child. (laughs) I'll tell you a secret, and uh, to any listeners, I have occasionally come across a piece of my own writing that has moved me to tears, and then there's a part of me that just says, I don't trust anybody who cries at her own writing. I just can't, you know? It's kind of a ridiculous thing in a way, and it sort of mirrors what you're saying. I was speaking with a young writer on the weekend and interviewing her, and she made the point that, yes, it's very difficult to be in a position where you're saying to people, please buy my book, especially face-to-face, when you really don't feel like you should have to say that or should say it or should you say it. She said she felt like she was selling herself in a way. Yes, and it's unpleasant if someone says no. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) You've just done your presentations and you see that people are not buying your book and not lining up or lining up and uh, not buying the book. Or maybe it's sort of hard to detach yourself from being a writer versus being an author and this sort of external view of what you need to do. But it's part of the the game and part of the reality. I think that I appreciate everybody who loves my books. I appreciate people who write to me, who contact me, who come up to me to talk. I love when when I give them pleasure and they say, oh, I've read it, I really loved it. You've brought Catherine the Great closer, I've understood something. Or you love this book of that book. So there is a great pleasure in it. The buying part, I wish we didn't have to participate in it, but we have to. There's no way we cannot. There's no way a writer now can say, I'm not going to do it. I mean, unless you're so popular that you really don't have to do it. But I guess that that also only comes later, much later in your career. And it's something that you still have to manage in some ways. That's part of our duty to our publishers and to our readers and because the publisher also has to risk a lot to, to pay for the book up front and to market it. So kind of withdrawing from the process is not a way out. It really isn't. So I do it. I do it and sometimes I find it nicer when you walk into a room and you see 300, 400 people wanting to talk to you. Yes. Or even a small group, but interested. 
I, I love doing Skype with a book club. I'm Skyping this Friday with, with a group of 10 women who, who want to talk about Catherine the Great. You see, that actually is not very time-consuming. It doesn't involve any traveling, and it's actually very nice, very lovely. It gives me a sense that what I'm doing all, all day has I'm not doing in a vacuum. So there's parts that I like and parts that I do not like. Um, I'm a bit introverted, so I mean quite introverted, I should say. So you know, I can do the extrovert part for a little while and then I have to withdraw and charge myself. And when the book is out and when the publisher books a lot of events, it's sometimes not possible. for. A, so the first month is pretty tough. Later it's easier. Mm-hmm. I think we have the historic situation of the artist who has a patron. And the patron's called the publisher, and the publisher has certain very reasonable expectations and demands in response for putting that money forward and creating the book uh, in its physical essence and so forth. And that has been with us as long as there have been artists. There's been that discussion of art and money. And I just think, yes, we are bound, whether we are indie published or whether we are traditionally published, to understand the marketplace and to use that part of our brains a little bit and get out there and, as you say, get from the introvert to the extrovert a little bit, but not so much that we get drained. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, just being part of the community, of the writing community, I find it very very rewarding, actually, to know that I have writer friends with whom I whom I can help and who can help me. And by help, I mean even just chat about the process of writing instead of reassure me when I'm down and I can reassure them when they are down with what they're doing or read each other's work and offer comments that are helpful and center on the craft of writing. I like that part. I like listening to other people read from their books, being part of the writing community. Uh, exchanging letters, emails, being in touch, discussing uh, the whole idea of writing, because we are all like-minded in some ways. Writing is important. Writing is a craft. Writing is a means of expression. That's how we connect to the world. So that part is actually very, very pleasant. The buying part and the selling part, I, I think that happens and then there's the really important moment of detachment you know with Catherine novels now I'm all right you know, I respond I don't I'm not spent um, any time worrying about the book will it make it or not make it no it's already had its course and whatever happens is a bonus someone writes to me saying oh would you like to come and talk about your book oh it's, so it's not forgotten so someone else is interested that's very nice but when the book is very new you kind of feel like you need to push it you need to push it you feel almost you scan papers saying, oh my God, is there going to be a review? Will it make into the bestsellers list? Or will it be sold internationally? Who who is interested? So that part I find more difficult than than what I do now. Like to think, okay, this is like my grown up son, you know. I, That's right. <laughs> I, I don't that. need daily updates of what he's doing. <laughs> but right. I, I want to know he's doing very, very well. Yeah, I'm very happy to hear yeah. from him. And of course I seek contact and I do everything. If he ever asks me to help, I always am here. But I don't have that kind of urgency. That's what I do with a very new book. That's right. Well, thank you so much, Eva, for this lovely afternoon chat, especially at the certain point in your writing that you're at, for being so incredibly open with us. And that's it. That's all. Did you want to say something to wrap up, or are you feeling pretty complete? 
Oh, I'm feeling very complete. Just to thank you for being here. And you know, <laughs> we have a long story behind us we, of our friendship. And you've been a fellow teachers. And now we are fellow writers. And you're still a generalist. You know, so just appreciation of uh, our old uh, relationship. Thank you so much for that. I really appreciate it. And that's a very good note to leave on. Thanks for listening to Soul Sciences. We look forward to having you come back again soon. And in the meantime, remember, take care of each other. Mm-hmm.